compost demystified. I'm Matt Powers. We're beginning now. This first story I want to share with you is something that I was really lucky to first hear about because the bark beetle damaged the processionary caterpillar in Europe. There are these insects that are these secessionary um, catalysts and they are destroying the forests and they're, they're, they're really responding to the signal of these plants themselves putting out a desire like for them to be turned into mulch or forest fire biochar. Um, and so that's immunological response because they're, they, they, they need so much help in this instance, right? No one seems to have figured this out until now. So reversing the bark beetle outbreak was such a big deal. Um, it was, I, it was on my radar. It was something that seemed inevitable. The picture right here and behind is of the foothills before, before you get to Yosemite. So this national forest, you can see where it's burned. You can see where it's red. The red is dead. The green is still alive or fighting. And these bark beetles are destroying these trees. And when I heard from this person that they were able to reverse this with compost, I was so excited. But it, it, it's a little bit of a, of a sad story because they didn't mean to do it. It just happened. They brought back dead looking. They looked like dead trees. They were dying, obviously, but they brought these trees that looked like they were dead back with compost teas and they saw the sap push out and shoot out the pupae and the eggs from the bark beetles and the beetles themselves melt and die. And so they're spraying compost tea and they love it because like they're doing like, like landscaping, they're working for cannabis farmers, they're doing all this stuff and they don't have to wear gloves or masks or anything. They love it because they know it's safe. Um, and at the same time, they're like, whoa, it's killing beetles. What's going on? And someone else noticed. These pesticide companies noticed. And they all sued the compost tea company. Imagine you finding the, the actual solution to the bark beetle problem, or if you're in Europe, the processionary caterpillar problem, and them suing you for it. Mm. Brutal, right? Uh, after years in court, the compost tea company did win the case, but it was years in court. It was painless for the pesticide companies to slow them down and, and drain them of money. But for this compost tea company, that was extremely hard. And so I like, I had to like pull the story, you know, out of him. And this was actually in the filming of the advanced permaculture student online, uh, my first big online course. And it, he would only say that it was worms with a special diet. Luckily, I went and visited Rincon Vitova on that same exact tour. Only a few days later, I was filming with my son, met Ron Whitehurst. And so Todd Slemmy of Organics Alive was the compost company. The video is circulating. I've, I've released that, that, that clip of it. And, and they're still in business. And they're still going strong. They're still helping people all over, making incredibly tailored compost, like designer compost teas with worms 
and worm castings with special diets. And then I'm over at Ron's, you know, in his insect like breeding facilities. It smells, you know, and he's like chuckling and he's like, that smell is, is ammonia, you know? Um, and uh, this insect frass is extremely high in nitrogen. And if you put it in your compost, not only do you get the nitrogen, but then you get chitinase because it has to break down the, the chitin and it forms chitinase to break down the chitin. And, and he was like, and chitinase digests all chitin. And I was like, click, click. And I was like, this is the diet. He's feeding insect frass to his worms. And this was like happening in real time as I was filming and developing the course. <laughs> and I actually like designed the course so that the students would like figure it out with me at the same time. It was fun. Uh, and so this one plus one equals two thing, chitin plus decomposition equals chitinase rich compost uh, shows us a deeper a deeper lesson that should be noticed, should be noted uh, that insect frost is the key, but, you know, and this is also a way that we can do safe and natural pesticides and preventatives for our plants. So, so insect frost, inner compost, awesome and amazing, but it's also a way that all the pesticides can be erased. It's a safe, way to take care of pests. And sometimes there are things that happen in a seasonal, a cyclical way that doesn't have to do with your individual farm. It has to do with the larger ecosystem. It has to do with the larger cycles and systems and of the earth and of all life. And, and you have to deal with that when it happens. And, you know, if you, if you, <clears throat> if you have the ability to do it naturally and no longer use chemicals that are persistent, that are forever chemicals that kill people, that give people cancer, that kill generational farms, generational orchards, like the peach orchard in Missouri, um, why not? And if we can use it and then water it in and have that be food that strengthens the plant. So you're not only like, uh, fixing the thing, attacking it, you're digesting that thing and turning it into the food along with the biology and the humic you know, compounds that you added with, with your compost tea, but you are strengthening the plant and addressing the plant's issues. So in one fell swoop, whoop, you take care of the pests and save the plants, uh, like lack, uh, fix the plants lack and help it immunologically be responsive and defensive. So this is, this is something big <laughs> this week. We've already uh, talked about how the peak phosphorus, you know, myth is not real. That's peak mineral phosphorus that they can mine easily. And the fact that there's phosphorus in all the soils at the amounts that mycorrhizal fungi can mine and release. It's silly to just keep doing this mining operation and feed into this large big, dangerous and destructive industry. We let's skip it. Um, <clears throat> let's have plants and the mycorrhizal fungi, which can, you know, uptake, uh, increase uptake by 10,000 times handle the phosphorus. I mean, <laughs> we are at the point where 
people like the late Michael Phillips realized that you don't want to add compost in with your tree roots in, in, in humid, uh, in humid climates like he is in, in New Hampshire, because you want the mycorrhizal fungi to have no phosphorus, like bearing like compounds around so that it can really express and really get turned on. It's like having nitrogen rich fields and then putting rhizobia on your beams and then putting on the field, it's not going to nodulate even. So you got to know your, your levels and everything tangent, but worthwhile. The point here is we've reached another, another like end of the road with, with the way we've been doing things. Roundup is an herbicide. There's ways to deal with, 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 with weeds that like are incredibly simple. People are using steam injection in the ground to, to kill weeds as a spot treatment instead of spot treatment with chemicals. This is another thing you, we have an easy solution for handling pests for handling. Uh, and this also remember fungi is made of chitin. So this takes care of your fungal blights as well. So, and it's a preventative. And so um, this is not something to like miss. This is something to let sink in. We have all the pieces, the nitrogen fertilizer piece, the phosphorus peak fertilizer piece, the pesticide piece. We do have the herbicide piece, um, generating enough electricity to create steam. We've been doing that for a while. We can keep doing it. <laughs> and, and the reality is these farmers that are trying to transition, these farmers that are trying to be responsible anyway with the chemicals are only using these chemicals as spot treatments anyway. So switching them over to a steam powered machine, it's easy for them. We just have to get the word out there. Uh, most of the time, this stuff is um, prevented from circulating. I'm shadow banned on Instagram. You may know many people who are shadow banned at this point. Um, like this video, like this broadcast, share it with your friends uh, so that we can spread the word because we do have all the solutions and the answers are all here. We need to empower our farmers and support our farmers to make these transitions and make sure they have the resources uh, in, in, in terms of the, 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 the five components that we talked about last time to make that transition profitable. Because if you're in coherence with all those five areas, like we talked about last time, it will be profitable. So, um, and, and, and this is also folds right into that, this whole compost conversation we're having today. Have you guys ever watched that movie Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner? It's like a classic. Uh, if you build it, they will come, right? Um, if your compost eats it, you know, you're cultivating something in there that ate it. So composting is decomposition. There's a bunch of different pathways we can do to do compost. Um, but the things we cultivate in the compost, the microbes, they're triggered by the foods you provide. So um, it, the environment drives the horizontal gene transfer. So if you have the same microbes going into a compost, but have different foods, you'll get different microbes on the way out. And yes, there's microbes inside the substrate you, that you provide, the plants, no doubt, but it's the treatment of, of the, the, those, those microbes that changes them. They're like, oh my gosh, we're in a hot 
environment, we're going to either make way for thermophiles or become thermophiles. And they may become cysts, they may insist, or they may senesce. It's, it's, it's not quite certain because their dead genes can then be uptaken by the, the microbes at the end when it cools back down, and then they can horizontal gene transfer into those things again, but they may not be the original microbes that did that. And, and you know what I mean? Like the same train of biology, the, 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 the microbes from inside the plants, the microbes from the air, the microbes that are born from all of those different lines. Uh, we haven't sussed out yet <laughs> the, the exact ratios, but, but that's, it's really important to point those kinds of things out because uh, they, people have this tendency to, to, to talk about things like they know and rah, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing to me um, that, that people don't have more humility uh, in this space. Uh, and, and, and YouTube's different, seemingly. YouTube's really an incredible space. Like Facebook, you have people who are like keyboard jockeys, very certain of themselves. Um, that have never even heard of horizontal gene transfer or rhizophagy or endophytic nitrogen fixation, you know, basics. So, so I just want to like put that out there because I want you guys to have this open mind with me and in this space, because this database, that's, uh, I shouldn't mention this database right now. I'm talking about this, but I'm creating a database. Uh, there's a tangent. It's going to be free that everyone's going to be, be able to participate in. There's going to be a pay layer. So it's going to have tools for you to do incredible things as a soil consultant, researcher, farmer, the whole nine yards. But there's going to be a free component for everyone. It's going to be really incredible. So I really want to be open with everyone about like the where we stand so that you all can participate at the highest level in that because if we all can have a community of our understanding, we will progress understanding. It's like, um, you know, Shakespeare, they're like, oh, well, the reason Shakespeare's so good, it was the time when the English language was truly alive and there was multiplicity of meaning and everyone really understood it. And it was in that level of fluency that everyone was into wordplay and very clever and sharp in that time period that the greatest writing happened. It's uh, like a Bach, you know, Bach story, right? Bach was the son of a music teacher and everyone in the family was music teachers or professional performers at royal courts. Like he literally grew up in the environment, like outliers. Yeah. So, so I just like, I want to highlight that and I want to foster that as a community because we can, because the internet is empowering when it's not being used for nefarious reasons. When we do it open-handedly, we're gonna have open source code. We're gonna be doing it all because uh, we can. And the power of it is incredible. Uh, it's basically me doing horizontal gene transfer. Uh, well, us doing horizontal gene transfer as we exchange information and ideas and research in real time and have the fluency of communication and understanding to make meaning generate out of those exchanges and comparisons it's going to be the bomb. So um, I just realized I'm from the, uh, uh, revealed I'm from the nineties. Sorry. Have you heard of the IPMO? So this directly relates to this. Okay. And that's the reason why my shirt's pink. 
because IPMO is the jump off. So if you are into Korean natural farming, you're like, natural farming is my life. If you love Chris Trump, if you love all the people in natural farming, Korean natural farming, you're a master Cho fan. You got all the books. You do things exactly. There are people that are improvising. Okay. And I had two of them on last week on my podcast, Steve Raisner, a potent ponics and, and Chris Trump. So the lab with purple non-sulfur bacteria that made with the blue spirulina, that's Steve Raisner, that's a level up on lab. And that's like promoting the EM, right? Component that we love so much that, that powerhouse that feeds four, four ways that rhodocytomonas palustris, bang. And then you have Chris Trump, who's talked about IP, IPMO, IPO, IPMO. Let me move this out of the way. Well, I can't move it out of the way. Chris Trump is his name. I It looks like it's Chris True, but my mouse disappears when working with Keynote and Zoom. This is the life we live. So you just got to trust me. His name's Chris Trump. So Chris is one of my best friends. Um, I got to meet him for the first time like two weekends ago, but we've been working together, talking together, relying upon each other, being brothers to each other, essentially, for many years. And I, I love this guy. And I got to meet him and I love him even more. I, I feel like lucky to be alive at a time that I could be friends with so many incredible people at Myceliate where both of us were keynoting. I got to meet some of the most incredible people at MycoFest this year where I was also keynoting. It was like legendary, like, you know, sold out event, like so many, it, I've had so much, so many people that I've met. I just want to honor that whole thing. That that whole month was the most incredible month that I've ever had as a speaker. And, and thank you. Thank you, William. Thank you, Cassandra. Um, but back to this, Chris Trump, I was there with him. We got to hang out and we got to dig deep on so many things. And one of those things was IPMO. He found weevils in his IMO substrate. And we talk about this in the in the podcast too. I made him talk about it again. So so you get the full story. Um, but there were weevils in his substrate, and he was like, "I don't have time. I'm making my prep anyway." Uh. And then chitin plus decomposition equals chitinase rich compost. Can remember our rules, field of dreams, baby. We're gonna make this thing, and they're gonna come right. So the chitinase then digested the weevils and turned them into these little puffs when he made the IMO. And then they used it on the field. It was incredible. They had no insect pressure. It dealt with um, powdery mildew. He saw all these incredible results. And he was like, this is the way to do things. This is really cool. I love this. And then um, Steve Raisner was, I believe, yeah, he was, I don't know, I can't remember which country it was in Africa, but he was in Africa working on a site. They had crazy locust pressure. Remember this story? They, the, the, the locusts arrive, you know, like I think it's every 11 years, every 12 years in Africa and, or every 15 years, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Um, uh, it's like the locusts here in America, um, but they're, they're giant grasshoppers and they feed and destroy everything in their path and travel like a wave. So it's quite different. These ones, the cicadas here just make the buzzing sound, right? But these things were destroying everyone's fields, except for people doing IPMO, following natural farming, Steve Raisner, 
Chris Trump's folks because he was spreading this information in his network. And I would add John Kempf because John was doing his side of it's very similar what John is doing, but from a different side of it. That's what I show in my book, Regenerative Soil, that all these things are one thing. Um, but anyway, tangent. This is compost. Compost is going to solve the problems, okay? Compost is going to provide everything that we need in these critical situations because compost is in action. Compost is like, it's, it's like this alchemy, like process, this alchemy, alchemical process that uh, seems magical, but we're actually breaking it down and really beginning to understand what's actually going on, which is incredible. But wait, you know, who am I? I'm this guy, this author, educator, entrepreneur, soil expert, seed farmer, and, sam and family guy. I'm a citizen scientist, essentially. And I've been working on the bridge to a regenerative future. I've been writing books, over 22 different books. I have 12 online courses. And today we're going to be talking about something old and we're talking about something new, something that you, you know, stuff that you recognize, but we're going to be seeing it, these familiar faces through new lenses. Uh, like remember those five lenses that we talked about last time? Well, we're going to be talking about those, um, like through those essentially. So the origins of compost, let's talk to my original my original soil and compost mentor, Dr. Elaine Ingham. And there's a video called The Origin Compost on my YouTube. I'm not going to make you sit through it again. You probably already watched it. You probably know this story, but let me remind you. In the 90s, sometimes compost helped. Sometimes it hurt and sometimes it did nothing and they didn't know why. And so she and a few others embarked upon figuring it out. And it's, it essentially is this Goldilocks effect that's ubiquitous in our world. And you'll come to recognize what I mean by that. So, you know, we don't grow well in the, like the hottest, hot times of the year or the hottest desert areas of the earth. And we don't grow well, food well, in the coldest, cold times of the year where it's really wintry or where it's like frozen around like the poles. So we tend to grow best in this Goldilocks uh, region of the earth. We tend to thrive in, in all these sort of like, you know, not too hot, not too cold kind of ways. I mean, that's what earth is, if you think about it. We're in this Goldilocks, Goldilocks um, section of the universe between where it's too hot, and where it's too cold. And when we wanna build ourselves mentally or physically, we need to be at a hormatic level of stress, not too much, not too little. The body actually starts to degrade if we don't stress it out enough. But if you stress it out too much, it starts breaking down. And so this, we really had to map it out and that's, you know what, uh, you know, Elaine Ingham did and so many other people did. And, you know, we think need things to be like not too acidic, not too alkaline. We need things, you know, thinking about soil. Um, and, and the issue really isn't that there's one sweet spot, but many. That's the problem is that at the initial outset of compost, it was, what's the best? Give me the one. I need one. 
Just one. I want to monoculture the solution. Not so good. But because we've been able to map it out, there's a lot of a lot of things to talk about. So first off, huge thank you to Dr. Elaine Ingham and Master Cho, you know, the founder of Korean Natural Farming, based off of three, and that's based off of the inspiration of three, because he made, you know, in many ways his own. Uh, three Japanese natural farmers uh, for all being pioneers in this space. But there are many other people too, I would add. They really all open the door for all of us. So what is compost? Well, it's decomposed matter. It's decomposed organic matter. And it, in it in, in, when we're talking usually about composting, we're talking about this process of heating it up. But this is not always the case though. And with 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 Korean natural farming um and with Elaine Ingham's and even Johnson Sue they all have a thermophilic period and that's really good because that's a selection period um a, a purification period is what I would uh, would be a great a great way to put it um and so is it natural is often a question that people have is it natural for things to get that hot? Like how often do you have this perfect one-third, one-third, one-third ratio? Well, those ratios make great soil, but the ratios, if they're off, still make hot compost quite often. And even if there's not enough nitrogen off on the other end, it's off the other way, right? Um, the rains and the rainstorms bring in nitrogen. So, so it's just a slower process. But let's dig into this. Um, because back in the day, when there was megafauna and megaflora, giant animals and giant trees and giant seasonal changes and dropping of leaves, there's more biomass and manure to interact in large one meter size piles, minimally giants, right? And dinosaurs too. Think about how humid and, and, and that whole world was, right? Especially in the human warm to hot areas, which likely led to sporadic thermophilic reactions. Yeah. That's the thing is it's like this, this kind of thing could easily happen in a hurricane with animals in the forest providing the nitrogen because they're dead, you know, uh, like the whole forest getting knocked over, that would compost you know, in the tropics and heat up and make pockets of thermophilic action. It's terrible, but that's actually what would happen. Um, so thermophiles, the thing about them is they're older. They're from the world before the oxygen rich world. Um, and so they can work in anaerobic or aerobic conditions. Um, that's why people use EM, but thermophiles are old. And they can handle that crazy heat. Uh, and they're really the reset button. That's why it's so good to do this. That's why it's so powerful to do this. They are extremophiles. So this is a real place. <laughs> this is actual. Um, it looks like hell or um, or some dream fairyland with, with elves and dwarves, but it's real. Um, and you don't want to go in that water. So 
going back to that question though, what is best compost? It really depends. Like I said, you know, Elaine Ingham's perspective, um, independent of the bacterial to fungi uh, ratios, a minimum of 300 beneficial bacteria per microgram, 10,000 flagellates and amoeba per gram of soil, a few beneficial nematodes per gram of soil. And these are the compost types. And that's, that's done with a microscope. That's done with some math too, because she's not counting 10,000 compost types. And so that's a, that's, um, on average, and that's scaled up from a, a, a sampling from a small, like one gram of soil sample. Uh, so this is why it's incredibly important to take lots of samples and do these tests more and more. Um, and that's why I'm creating this database to facilitate and make it easier so we can get even more tests so that we are much more accurate. Compost types. So this is the thing. If plants prefer specific habitats, as they do, then we need to tailor our compost to fit the habitat they prefer. And on the more acidic side, you've got the trees, the deciduous, the vines, the shrubs. And then on the alkaline side, you've got the grasses, the vegetables, the brassicas, the amaranth, the beets. And then you've got the deserts. So the far extremes on the, on the alkaline side are the bare soil, desert, disturbed soils. On the acidic side, the farther side is old growth. So this is the pH scale, but it's also the nitrogen scale from this perspective. It's nitrogen scale is a little bit more complicated. We'll talk about it, but this, this really shows us that we need to design our compost to fit that pH range and to fit that climate. And not only that, we may need to time our compost teas with a different types and keep them separated so that you could be using your bacterial compost on vegetative growth and your fungal compost on more perennial growth and reproductive growth. So, so this, this is an incredible, an incredible insight that um, was mapped out several years ago when we created uh, the Permaculture Student 2 but it's only proved to be truer and truer as time has gone on, as we've seen the other side of pH, the twin, the not identical twin, um, but together they form um, the Paul Bayes chart, um, the millivolts, the EH, the redox. And even here, we can see that there's that same swing of expression. And so we need to understand what we want and where we want to grow. And, and that sweet spot is always swung in and out of as rain comes, as things dry out, as exudation begins and ends, as exudation flips from re releasing protons to hydroxides. A great way to think about that, um, this chart right here, the ideal zone is the cross-section between all of these soil types and environments. And so if you're ever pushing too far in any of those areas, you'll have the lockouts come into those areas. So what are you lack, lacking? What are you, what are you locking out of your soil? Compost is the way to deal with it. And let's talk about it. 
Compost can hold anything. So if you've got mineral issues, hmm. And, and there are some minerals that complex with <laughs> and get locked up in compost. No doubt. We got to make those foliar sprays. Maybe you get in a kelp reduced kelp foliar spray. Maybe you even get chelated minerals from John Kemp and AEA. You know, there's a lot of options, right? Um, though Chris Trump and Dr. Elaine Ingham are of the mind that if you bring in the right natural, like universal solutions, because Korean natural farming is using seawater, it's using fish. I mean, these things have every mineral in them. Um, so you, you hit all the notes, you know what I mean? Uh, and because the biology is managing it and responding to the environment, it fills in the gaps for you. So uh, understanding what it can hold is incredibly important. And it, even if it's in a locked up form, if the biology is there, I, it's, you can always argue that that's, what's, that's why it's being released because the, the microbes can release it if they're there. Um, th this just shows you the microbes on the actual organic matter. Those little halos are actually around microbes feverishly chewing on this chunk of wood. And you can see actually see the grain of the wood. This is from biochar. This, this is an unburned, just slightly charred piece of wood. And you can see the, um, the actual rings in it. So organic matter, nutrients, minerals, biology, compost is amazing. It can do all of these things. It can do anything. So let's start getting into it. Let's dig a little deeper. Composting has these specific variables. Time, temperature, moisture, aeration ingredients, pH and EH, and the fungal to bacterial ratios. Understanding these and being able to manipulate them to be and to do what you would like will give you the exact results you are seeking. Let's go over some basic rules of thumb. In terms of time, longer is always better. It appears currently from all the research that one year is currently ideal, though it also appears that you can start earlier. In terms of water, keep it moist, but not wet. 65% moisture is ideal. In terms of aeration, and that means you squeeze it as hard as you can and, 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 and drops come out. It doesn't ring out, it drops come out. In terms of aeration, keep it aerobic, means oxygen rich, means non-stinky uh, or, or biologically controlled facultatively. So that means you can close it, you can keep out the air as long as you have certain microbes there that will literally control the situation like EM, effective microbes. And we'll be talking to Eric Lancaster of Terraganics tomorrow about that. So dive into that with us tomorrow. Subscribe, go to the notifications, it'll be there. In terms of ingredients, the carbon to nitrogen ratio needs to be in a range that decomposes properly. In terms of aeration, in terms of, of life, the biology needs the right foods and in adequate amounts. And sometimes we need to bring it in manually and sometimes we need to spoon feed things. How to know when it's ready? Well, it's the timing, the temperature, look and smell, testing, and using a microscope. That's why I've got that microscopy course and book coming out. So let's talk about the compost types. 
Grandma's compost, the one that just sits there is called a moldering static compost. It doesn't move. You just add to it. And you've seen that compost. Some of it's pretty unbelievable, isn't it? I, grandma can make some incredible compost because she's patient. And, and we can too. This is possible, especially if you guide it with the right microbes. This can take months or years. And usually you can do it without watering if you do it in a pen. It can be warm to cool. It can be little to no aeration. I mean, you might want to like aerate things like to move things around so it doesn't get nasty. Like things, some things need to be covered. Some things need to be broken up. It really just depends on the more surface area there is, the more carbon that you evenly mix in. Like if you've got a bale of straw or leaves or something that you're mixing in as you're adding new additions, the better. Um, that makes it so you, you don't have to aerate, right? Biology, volunteer worms and IMOs. You'll have worms come into your piles. Yeah, everyone does. Uh, and, and the indigenous microorganisms will as well. So the pH and EH, it needs to be close to the ideal zone. Um, and it ends up being close to the ideal zone over time. That's how you know it's ready in many ways. Fungal to bacteria ratio is usually bacterial or, or balanced. Um, ingredients, kitchen waste, yard waste. It can really be anything, but most people are using it with their kitchen waste, their house waste, because it is something they add to incrementally. Thermophilic hot compost. This is the one we all know. This is one of my composts um, uh, that's just hot. Uh, it's just horse manure and straw. And, and look how nice it came out. I mean, it was beautiful. So uh, it's really easy to do. This can take weeks to look like that, or it can take months. It needs to be regularly watered because it gets hot. You need to monitor the temperature, keep it in that Goldilocks range. You need to um, check it almost every other day and turn it. Uh, so that's a back thing, unless you got a machine to do it, but then, you know, there's a trade-off of energy there. Um, the bio there's, cause there's better ways. Um, the biology is thermophiles, and if you've got a mother pile, you can add the biology from the mother pile and inoculate your new pile. So you might have a library of biology in a mother pile. I've got a video on my YouTube on it. Check it out. If you don't know that video, it's also a part of Regenerative Soil, the online course. It's awesome. It's a Matthew Trump. Uh, and that's actually what inoculated the Catalyst Bio Amendment's entire company. So it all began with this one pile. Um, and pH and EH, it's any pH and EH you desire, but it usually ends up being alkaline just because of all the, the heat um, causes all the, the, the CO2 and the nitrogen, a lot of it to be gassed off. And so you've got a lot of oxygen flowing in there because you're constantly turning it. So it's going to be oxidized. Things tend to be more nitrates rather than ammonium. So it's, it's alkaline. Uh, fungal to bacteria ratio, any ratio desired, but usually bacterial. You have to do specific things to make it fun fungal. And we can, we can talk more about that in a minute. Um, ingredients, proper mix of carbon to nitrogen. So it's essentially these one, that one third, one third, one third thing I was talking about. <laughs> it's, it's manure, freshly harvested plants, and then dried plants that uh, have already gone to seed. So it's plants that, that haven't gone to seed or are going to seed it's that are harvested while green. And then it's uh, dead drying down plants. And then it's also manure. 
And this combination makes for an incredible mix. It's really about creating surface area though, to make it go quick and create that even resolve at the end. So you combine these things um, in layers, you fence it up, you put it on a pallet, you uh, water it as you go, and then you water it at the end until it leaks, and then you cover it with a tarp. And, you know, I mean, originally this was the Berkeley method, um, and it, it was this 18 day compost. And then Elaine Ingham's method, uh, became, became the, the 15 day. And this is one of our students. This is Matthew Trump talking about that's his mother compost. Um, the Elaine Ingham method became 15 days at that temperature turning five times at a minimum plus cooling and maturation time, which at first was like 10 days to a couple of weeks. And, um, this kills weed seeds, pathogens, parasites, and parasitic eggs. So it's essentially a purification process of those things. It doesn't kill all E. coli. It doesn't kill um, all shigella. It doesn't kill all salmonella. Um, it, we need earthworms to do that part. So that's why so many people have changed the way they do things. So you can't just do one thing alone. You can't just do hot compost and be like, you're done. Because uh, it kills some pathogens. It doesn't kill all pathogens. Um, so it's really important to understand that hot composting does not kill E. coli, Shigella, Salmonella strains. Not all of them. There are heat resistant strains now because what happened was people did sort of hot or inconsistently hot piles and those microbes learned. Uh -huh. So it's really important to understand that uh, we need worms in this equation to actually take out the pathogens like E. coli. And then remember that alcohol spontaneously combusts at 180 degrees Fahrenheit. So don't let your pile get too hot or it might catch on fire. These things do happen. So turn it if it goes below 131 or if it goes above 140. Here, you know, we, we've recently been able to document a lot of new students from Elaine's courses. And I haven't taken her new classes. Um, uh, there's like a disclaimer about how you can't teach, you know, the stuff that you learn in those classes. And I teach everything I learn. So I steer towards that. Though I am an affiliate, I'm a friend, I'm a supporter. She's always at all my stuff. Um, uh, much love to her and thank you for her for all that she's done. Um, but her recent students from her recent programs, they're saying that all their piles and even in the video examples I have in my course of all of them teaching what they've learned um, has four to six months of, of cooling. So they're doing much longer cooling time periods now. Um, and, and so, um, that's, that's really good because the best practice is what we're going to talk about next. <laughs> so best practice I would say is Johnson suit composting and it's, it combines all of these things. And, you know, people are worried about bringing back the carbon into the soil. Um, I would say that, th that there's, there's a lot we need to do if we want to unpack that whole CO2 thing. CO2 is not a good metric um, for measuring carbon. Uh, there's a flex around it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, check out the carbon cycle video I put up. Uh, we just need to grow the engine of, of CO2, which is photosynthesis. Um, and what's wild is this type of composting actually increases the, the way that plants take down carbon, which means their photosynthetic capacity, right?
because the photosynthetic capacity deals directly with the sugars they get out of it, which is the carbon. So what's so incredible about this quote is that yes, we'll be able to take down, um, you know, all of all the, the carbon that they're saying that's in the atmosphere, that's in excess in two years with this type of compost. But what's so incredible about that is that means that it's not really the compost that did it because the incredible thing about this kind of compost is they added it once, one time. And every year after that, each planting, it got, it increased its ability to sequester carbon through the exodus, you know, and the associations, mycorrhizae and, 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 and bacteria in the soil. Those relationships increased every single year after one application for seven years. That is totally different than us taking like the soil like uh and adding compost to it and saying now we've added this much because that was the compost that was the organic matter percentage we added no 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 this is changing the way the plants and soil behave so that the cycles they do bring down way more carbon from the atmosphere is that a new finding or do you think that is normal and we've just not seen normal in so long i think it's normal and we're, we've been missing the biology in our plants and our soils by bringing back the, 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 the plants, actual immunological complement of microbes, they suddenly can sequester so much carbon. They suddenly are sweeter uh, because the sugars is the carbon. They suddenly um, change the soil around them rapidly and it just exponentially grows and continues after one application. So it's the only documented uh, case of this is the Johnson Sioux. And um, it's really important to understand why this, this is working this way. This is part of what I've been doing with my work with regenerative soil. Let's combine all the practices. That's what Johnson Sioux is. Hot composting, moldering compost, and vermicomposting. So in other words, you've got the selection process at the beginning where you break things down really fast, where you split things, the heat splits things. Um, sorry, let me just fix this. The heat splits things open. Um, and, and then the moldering compost allows things to really develop. The fungi doesn't like to be disturbed. Let's be honest, right? Fungi likes to create hyphae and these long highways of expression. And that's only going to happen in the moldering compost. That was the problem and the reason that hot compost, the Elaine Ingham and the Berkeley Method compost constantly was creating bacterial compost, alkaline compost, nitrate compost, which is stressful for plants. Um, it's good for vegetative growth, but not reproductive growth and not long-term growth. I mean, you can have a touch of it and it's good. But so moldering compost always was still winning and people didn't know why. And vermicompost was always this like outlier in the whole situation. It always worked. No one knew why they just favored. I mean, even Darwin, you know, dedicated the end of his life to earthworms. Earthworms are incredible. They're, they're the fail safe. They're the thing that are going to remove E. coli, Salmonella, Shigella. They're the things that do vermicompost. The worms can do the things that the hot composting can't. Moldering compost can do the things that hot composting can't. But by doing them all together, we get an incredible result. 
I've got those same pipes out there in the barn. I'm going to do this same exact build. I'm going to do it to spec. I've got a lot of things on our new site that I'm going to be doing. Um, and this is one of them. Johnson Sioux Compost. Uh, this is a bioreactor, beam compost is its other name. This takes at least a year. It's regularly watered by a ring from above. You do a ring waterer on top and you want to keep the moisture at 65%. So I'm not going to give you a time. I'm not going to give you an exact amount because guess what? In the heat, heat of, you know, desert Texas is completely different from, you know, uh, British Columbia uh, or or Patagonia, or Africa, or India, they're all different climates. So you need to, you know, figure out what 60, get, get a moisture meter and test that thing and, and, and get your numbers right. Uh, and it'll change for you in each season that you do it, right? Um, temperature, it goes hot and then cold into vermicomposting. Aeration, tubing holes, and then and they literally pull those tubes out after a few days. Biology, thermophiles plus moldering plus worms. Uh, the pH and EH, it's typically acidic and it's typically fungal, it's typically highly fungal. And that's the desire here. We want the most fungal compost. That's been the holy grail the past 10 years. And that's why um, all the new Elaine Ingham compost extend it so that they can get those fungal numbers. And they do. Uh, Catalyst Bio Amendments has, in, they're the all-star the all-star compost company that is Elaine Ingham trained. They have the best compost that I've ever seen. I'm waiting to see Wormy's compost. Chandler sent me the compost. So I, so I can compare it. I heard that, that Wormy's has very fine compost and I want to explore that too. So please share with me. I'll do, I need to get this area organized. I haven't had enough like space to set up all the tests I have now. I really wanted it so that I could like film myself going through all the different tests, but I just have to basically clear everything off, box it up, put it there, and then set up everything just for DNA and then put it all up and then set everything. <sighs> but it's okay. It's okay. We'll do it. Um, because I want to know what's in Wormy's compost. I'll talk about more about that in a second. So the ingredients, it's a proper mix of carbon and nitrogen, usually manure and wood chips quite often. It could be just leaves quite often and they get incredible results. Can look like this, can look like this. They can look like this. And here's a diagram for you. This is uh, the diagram that's in regenerative soil. And this is the supplies you'll need. So semi-aerated static compost. Um, a baby Johnson Sue. This is what we're talking about. You could do this. Combine a laning method with this method. People are doing this. You can actually even aerate from below like Wormies or Michael Phillips, make it a static pile. That's what my auto, my auto composter system is right here outside. It auto waters and it auto aerates so that I don't have to turn it and it's a huge pile. So this can take weeks, months, um, depending on how you do it. Again, it's the same water, same temperature deal. It's static. It's this, it can be thermophiles at the beginning, inoculated with a mother pile. No, it's definitely thermophiles at the beginning, but it could be mother pile inoculant uh, and definitely worms at the end. pH, EH, slightly acidic usually. It's balanced to fungal. And, and again, you're just going off the carbon to nitrogen ratios. EM composting. This is interesting. 
when you guide compost with EM, because this is going to be like fascinating, even more fascinating in a second, you actually control the temperature. And instead of the nitrogen being gassed off and used up in a hot reaction, it's turned into amino acids and uh, the putrefaction and all those uh, anaerobic processes are prevented by lab, by lactic acid bacteria. And so EM, cerveza yeast is eating up the sugars. Um, and you have, it, it's an incredible combination. EM is Rhodocytomonas palustra uh, cerevisia, um, uh, Saccharomyces cerevisia. Um, it's lactic acid bacteria. And then it's a collection of other microbes that are, are important. Um, streptomyces, um, I mean, there's, there, there's a lot there. So I, I mean, I've got the DNA readouts to show it thousands. So, so it's incredible, but what it does is it breaks down faster. It makes it so it doesn't lose size. It doesn't lose nutrition in the way that hot compost does for hot compost to work. It needs to burn something. It needs to gas it off. So you end up with something that's more oxidized because it's losing energy. It's losing potential. It's losing fertility. So this is why more and more people are doing IMO compost because IMO compost is guided compost in the same way that EM compost is. This can take weeks or months, um, regularly watered with diluted EM. It starts warm to hot into cooler. It's aeration every few days, not every other day. You can inoculate it with mother pile. It has thermophiles. You're adding EM. It's going to be slightly to moderately acidic. It's going to be balanced to fungal and you just keep doing the same carbon to nitrogen ratios. So I got to tell you something. I do DNA sequencing. It's something that I love to do. I have to keep it in a, I would, I would I have the desire to like hold it up and show it to you, but eh, it has to stay in the fridge. You can't like fool around. It's so much money. You can't like keep it out. It has to stay at a correct temperature unless you're using it. And then while you're using it, it's running fans to stay hot and to stay within a Goldilocks temperature so that the processes flow. Um, yeah, I mean, it has a, a flow cell. It's a minion. This is my minion and inside it, my minion, right? Um, inside it is a flow cell. And this is from Oxford Nanopore Technology. This is the, the highest level and the newest level, the cutting edge of DNA sequencing. Instead of using PCR technology, which is like a delay pedal and creates a muddied signal if you have more than like one purified variable. And even the purified variable can cause mutations in and confusion. I mean, I know people that have taken PCR uh, fungi and then read it and it's it purified fungi strictly and read as bacteria. So um, we have to be really careful with that whole PCR thing. That's why I don't do it. Um, I want accuracy. Uh, and, and so you can make it read for anything, especially in soil or like blood, stuff like that. So that's why direct reads is the future. Nanopore sequencing literally has these little nanopores and it breaks the DNA in half and then guides each half into it and reads the actual, the actual strip of DNA, half of the DNA, um, like a barcode. So it's an electrical signal that's read along the nanopore as it passes through. So this is like, we got this, we got this.
So then there's, there, there's, there's caveats even to this. Every testing method has caveats. And if you haven't heard caveats on, on a testing method that someone's trying to talk to you about, they're trying to like do something. And, and, and that's why I'm creating the RSOIL database because RSOIL, um, we need that data to be in the open so that we as a community can, can push things forward. So to that end, Rhodosudomonas palustris, there you are. Look how many reads there are. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is in all the samples. Not just EM. Streptomyces, all samples. Lactobacillus, not very many because the, the versions of lactobacillus change. So you would go look up lactocasei bacillus and then there would be like a whole other group. So these horizontally gene transfer very fast, as you can see. Segunda lactobacillus, like you see all those? Yeah, so this is what happens when IMOs take over from lab in EM. I compared new, M, new EM to old EM, and this is what happens. You lose lab, they get replaced by wild lab, and E. coli starts to express a dominance. And E. coli is commensal, endophytic, not the pathogenic E. coli. E. coli are actually the majority of microbes in the world, majority of bacteria in the world. I would say like, and, and, and that's not like 60% majority. There's so many diversity that the largest group could be less than 50%, okay? So um, like it's like 40% to 50% of every sample is E. coli. They're the dominant, they're everywhere and all over everything. Um, so they're, they're really important because they're a feedback signal and, and, and uh, feedback loop everywhere. I talk about that in earlier videos on my YouTube if you wanna dive, dive into that. So I compared, both EMs to all compost types. And I discovered EM is in all good composts. Kind of crazy, right? <sighs> EM is the all-star team of decomposition. It's in all the good composts. And so when we get EM, it's like the essence, and that's why it guides and speeds things up. And they're also endophytes. So they go inside the plant and help the plant strengthen the plant. So this is, and we can eat EM, we can eat it. So this is why EM is so important. You, you can, it's a feedback loop between your body and the soil and the plants and decomposition all in one. It's wild. Now, Bokashi is uh, de decomposing organic matter using EM. This is my friend Quatamuk. And that could take weeks, months. It's moist bran added regularly. It's a cool facultative decomposition. Uh, there's no aeration, though it does expand and contract as it works. The e, uh, it's EM biology and what's endophytic in the plants and the substrates you add. It's moderately acidic to really acidic and it's fungal. Um, and it's usually more nitrogen rich than other compost mixes because you can break down bones, meat, things that you, you normally can't break down in other composts. So there's that recipe. Terra composting, pit composting with biochar and biofertilizers. 
So this is the same idea of like all these ideas combined just in a pit. So if you if you, if you're doing like a tear, like we talked about compost beer parties, you know, you're doing EM, maybe you're doing biochar, you know, pottery shards, um, you're doing uh, you know, rock dust, you're doing seaweed, you're doing manure, you're doing fish, you're doing FPJ, you're doing FAA, you're doing all these different combinations and ingredients into your pit. And then you're covering it up and letting it digest. So it's it's really incredible. And you know, you might want to add to this if you really want to do like terra preta style, you would heat up the EM slightly. And then that would you you would use some cold EM, but then you would heat up some EM slightly because that would wake up the lactobacillus. Um, as Dr. James White theorized and what the Iroquois were doing, what Nigel uh, is now, Nigel Palmer is now doing, and perhaps Jadam folk are now doing, are, are doing. So, so it's, that's what I would add to that. And all this is in regenerative soil. Um, black soldier fly larva compost, um, black soldier fly larva is incredible. It is so high in nitrogen. It has obviously it's going to have these 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 the pupae. It's going to have insect frass. It's going to give you all those properties that we just talked about. Especially if you take this and use this as your inoculant in your hot compost or your Johnson soup. So you generate this, and then you just shove them in the center, and then they get destroyed. <laughs> Um, or they, or they leave depending on if they move fast enough. Um, but th this is another pathway for, for developing high nitrogen for developing high chitinase compost take weeks. Um, and if things are really, really proficient, you can see things, um, in days. So it's provided by the ingredients in the larvae, the moisture, and it, it, it stays warm and it, you you never want to aerate it, but it needs to be further composted after you're done. Because um, then, and then it depends on uh, PHEH, it depends on the actual ingredients. Same thing with fungal to bacteria ratios. Most people are using manures and kitchen scraps as ingredients. Now the Woody Jean Pen compost, <laughs> this is a classic one. So um, methane from compost is stored in the inner tubes and it is generated in that giant compost. See that thing in the middle? It's where he's going to capture the methane. This is a wild system, but it really just goes to show you how, like the range of possibility. Um, this was extremely... Um, nutrient loss rich uh, process. I mean, they're gassing off everything, right? And they're capturing it and he's using it to burn in his truck and in his house. And he's also using the heat to, to make hot water for his house. Months to years long, because it's actually just chipped wood. It's really wild. He would pre-soak the wood and then he'd uh, just do all these crazy things uh, to get it prepared to then compost it. 
It was very intensive physically. I don't think anyone really has ever tried to replicate this man's system. This man had incredible amounts of energy to do this. Um, and it was mostly anaerobic and things were very acidic and fungal at the end. And then it was just woody substrate. So it was almost all carbon. You could also be doing sheet mulching and sheet composting. So this is all in situ. You could be setting it up. You could be, I've got a video on this. You could be chopping and dropping things in the, in the course. Uh, there's actually a whole video here in the course. Um, so, and there's a video uh, of some of that on my YouTube, but, but essentially you're chopping and dropping things. You're mixing in manure and biochar, all the different ingredients and creating a layer of decomposition on top and guiding it with IMOs or EM or compost teas so that it breaks down quickly and becomes the soil in which you plant. So Hugo culture, if you've heard of Hugo culture, then, then you know this is a, a tradition from Austria that Sepphalter popularized and it's a way of dealing with woody substrate, but it's also a great way of creating fungal, fungal and IMO rich soils. So it takes years to break down. You usually don't have to water it other than the first year. And it's um, sometimes it heats up, but usually it's not very warm. It can a little bit warm in winter, maybe. Um, and you don't ever aerate it saprophytic fungi it's acidic it's fungal and and yeah it's it's easy and simple to do so vermicompost um there there's some do's and don'ts but it really has to do with the amounts because you could have garlic you could have some bones you could have peppers and citrus and onions in small amounts in a larger context and it could be fine if it's mostly those things, or if they're in a small space with those things and they don't have other food, that's when it's gonna be a problem. If they have choice and it's not much there, it'll break down enough until it's ready for them to work on. This can be three to six months. You know, the ingredients are so wet in this case that you don't really need to add moisture. Um, and it's ambient temperatures usually to warm sometimes in spots to just cool. You wanna keep it out of the sun, you wanna keep it covered. Uh, and you don't want it airtight. Uh, right, so the earthworms are doing the aeration. The biology comes from their digestion and from the plants and the substrates themselves. It's slightly alkaline because of their digestion. It's bacterial because of their digestion. But you can add in things to make it more fungal in their diet. So that this is this is probably a little bit more restrictive you know um non-woody no meat no dairy those kinds of things and this could be really creative you could be doing tower sections you could be towers with bins and bottom releases and pallets and pits even and that just depends if you have the ability to have these worms in your area i'm going to be buying all texas native worms to fur my systems so I don't have to worry about issues. So worms are incredible. Worms can even take down your compost after fungi have eaten them. So let's talk about compost tea. Mm. All right. 
So this is the actual process by which compost tea is effective, rhizophagy. Rhizophagy um, is, is when roots are eating, root eating, rhizophagy. And they feed on the microbes that are in compost teas. So plant roots prey upon compost tea. So when we feed at the root zone and right outside the drip line, that's why the plant reacts so well, because we're enacting rhizophagy. Compost tea is absolutely amazing because um, you can make it in 24 to 48 hours. Um, it's, it's, it, it, you can do this on a weekly basis and create a inoculant for your plants. You can create different kinds for different times in the growth period. Um, you, you can mix different types of compost for, for an incredible, like diversity. Um, yeah. And, and so the reality is that we break, we break the seesaw between oxidized and reduced when we go anaerobic with our, with our systems, they run out of sugars and start feeding on themselves, or they're just running out of space. Um, and, and, and it, and it is apparent. That's why we go by our, the smell. And that's why we go by a microscope to time it perfectly. And that's why a lot of people are doing compost extracts now to avoid heading too close to that anaerobic jump off or drop off. Um, it's usually bacterial, but you can, you can also add things to change that things that are fungal foods like, um, fish, uh, fish, um, hydrolysate, um, and, and like oatmeal um, and other things. So there's lots of recipes. There's lots of ways to do it. You can do it small. This is uh, one of my old systems. You do it big, but this is a small aerator or you can go really big with a proper aerator. Or you can go even bigger. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is Matthew Trum's system. Um, so it's ready within two to five days, depending on the ambient. Uh, temperature and water temperatures it stays viable six to eight hours after aeration ends. Many people are doing extracts now too. Um, and people water it down. I sometimes don't. I, I, I sometimes use it as a concentrate. And you can apply it as a foliar spray or water it into the soil. I use it as a concentrate watering into the soil and then I water it down when I do foliar sprays. And remember, we're on this range, so you got to pick your adventure. And this, and using the, the, this rule of thumb to analyze things is critically important. So compost extract, I've mentioned it before, but when you are just passively running water through a compost, you're getting compost extract and it's a fungal food. So, um, you add that to your soil and you increase the fungi in your soil. So when we have woody compost, it's, it's fungal food. So we get acidic fungal compost when you have green, fresh compost when you've got like lots of um green and fresh ingredients it's a kitchen scrap it's really wet that kind of compost is bacterial foods uh, and and that's also vermicompost and that's a, that's a alkaline and it's usually a little bit of oxidized so compost ingredients um you can download all these recipes and all in this chart in the 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 download link in last week, not last week, the last webinar. 
that I did. So I've all this information, all the recipes in there, you, you already have technically, uh, or you just missed it if you missed my first webinar. So go back to that webinar if you missed it after this is done and you can download all these recipes. If you're like, Matt, I was gonna screenshot that. Ah, I got you. It's okay. <laughs> I don't wanna waste your time doing that because I already got it for you as a download, as a full ebook. So, uh, and it's gonna be released on Amazon as a hard, as like a physical book eventually. I just haven't gotten around to it, but the, all this you're gonna have. So don't worry about that. On um, the typical compost is in the 20 to 30 carbon to nitrogen ratio at the start and then becomes 10 to one. You gotta keep it in that moisture range. There's online calculators, but in general, it's very generalized. Only commercial compost at huge levels are actually sampling and gathering that information. Um, so we use the general rules of thumb and then we use our eyes and nose and we stick to this fungal to bacterial ratio as best we can. So the bacterial, it's kitchen waste, it's low lignin, it's high in sugar and good moisture fungal. Um, that's woody, that's high lignin. The balance is, is a little bit of both. I, I would say the best way to do balanced is to make separate compost and then combine them. So it really depends on your ingredients. Those are the ingredients. So where do you want to grow? What do you want to grow? What do you need to fix? Compost can do anything. So gather your ingredients wherever you are in the world, look around you, find that abundance, that excess, and start gathering it. Where I'm at, Central Texas Mycological Society gives away used mushroom blocks. Talk about fungal compost tea inoculant. That's in my static compost. And already there's mushrooms growing out of the sides. So, so things are happening. <laughs> Get involved. Gather the things that you need. Dry or fresh. The bigger, the better. You have got this. But wait. How do I know what to use when and where? Join us live next time, okay? I'm not going to leave you high and dry. We're going to have a third one to this three-part series this week. I'm going to be I'm going to be sharing soon. I'll be I'll send out an email. Make sure you've downloaded that that ebook, that surprise ebook. I'll have another surprise the next webinar. Please join us if if you want to be notified, click the subscribe button down below. And I will, it'll be scheduled. And, and so you'll get a notification. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being part of this. It's these natural processes that teach us the truths of our world, the boundaries, the processes, the cycles, the things that give us the linchpins and leverage to make the world a better place, to increase life, to increase the potential for life, fertility, to increase productivity, abundance, and to guarantee a more regenerative future for all life, all people. So thank you for being here and being part of this. I'm Matt Powers, grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. And thank you for being part of this webinar. Click the subscribe button down there, and I'll see you later this week in the third part of this webinar series. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you.